This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metalcast, we talk to the bassist from Badlands and Kings of Dust, Greg Jason. We get in depth about his new band, Kings of Dust, and we hear some classic stories about Badlands from the past. Stay tuned for the end of the episode where I give my review of the Kings of Dust album. Check it out. Welcome to the 80s Glam Metalcast, Greg. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Awesome. So... You've got a new band together called Kings of Dust. You guys have posted some samples on YouTube. Sounds great. What do you want to tell everybody about it? Uh, buy the record. <laughs> <laughs> When's it coming out, Greg? I think the actual hard release is uh, March 13th. There was a pre-order program that uh, uh, we had done, and we probably sold, I don't know what the number is, but somewhere north of 800 hard cds so it's not going to be downloadable for a while um because you don't make any money at it and uh we paid for this thing ourselves so we uh we're paying ourselves back <laughs> i've been uh, i've been listening to it uh on youtube especially your song like a ocean i, I really like it man yeah. it's, it's definitely got like Thank a you. 70s 80s vibe you know kind of more similar to badlands i mean i really enjoyed it yeah you know it's kind of 70s riff rock sort of thing, uh, reminiscent of any of the bands, the heavier bands from the late 70s or even early 70s, you know, whether it's Humble Pie or Mountain or any uh, Zeppelin or Sabbath. So uh, our influences are pretty obvious without, you know, down downright thievery. And so it's just... Uh, the vi- it's got a real 70s vibe, a very 70s production where you can actually hear everything. And oddly enough, I wasn't concerned about the radio, but the song has been getting some airplay across the country and it's actually doing really well. So I didn't write anything that would, you know, intentionally be commercial. I just kind of write what I like. And, and it's so far, the response has been really good. Your vocalist voice, he kind of reminds me of uh, Ian Gillen a little bit. You know, I hear that. I, I hear it, Ian Gillen, and I also hear uh, Jeff Tate, people tell me. Oddly enough to me, he doesn't sound like anybody, which is one of the reasons I like him, but people hear what they hear what they want to hear. But he's, yeah, he's a really great vocalist, and um, he's a great lyricist. So his lyrics are, you know, not just on the well-worn path of everyone else type thing. He really kind of goes in some different directions, which I enjoy. Now, did you take care of the music uh, duties of writing? Or did you write lyrics as well, or does he do all that? He writes the lyrics, and the music is written, um, probably the lion's share of it is written by me, but um, when I come in I'll then with a song or whatever, then uh, the guitarist, uh, Ryan McKay, excellent guitarist, and the drummer, Jimmy Taft, one of my favorite drummers, they throw in their ideas as well, and we just kind of... Uh, kind of turned it into whatever whatever the, however I had it originally in my mind it usually ends up being that good or better and it can sometimes go in some other directions as well so we're very uh you know my influences are everything from classic rock to blues rock to blues to country to some funk to heavy metal to hard rock so all that is kind of represented in what it is we do and everyone else's influences are that varied as well 
Well, you talk about influences. Who are some of your influences as a bass player? Because when I listen to your bass playing, I mean, it's very distinct. Um, it definitely, you know, you seem to be in that 70s pocket where you're kind of climbing around on the bass. But I like the fact, too, that you, uh, you'll you rock out complicated riffs, especially like on the Badlands stuff. So who are some of your influences? Uh, my first main influence would probably have been uh, a guy named Martin Turner from a band Wishbone Ash. British band, and then uh, Tim Bogert when he was in Cactus, and then John Entwistle from The Who, John Paul Jones, Geezer, uh, Greg Ridley from Humble Pie, Felix Papillardi in Mountain, Andy Fraser from Free. If you took about 20 bass players from the 70s and mixed them all up, I'm kind of uh, a little bit of all of them. Um, I don't really play exactly like anyone, and I play a little bit like a lot of people. <laughs> Well, you know, and, and I, I am a busy bass player. I mean, the way that I hear music, whether it was with Badlands or Kings of Dust or anything I did before that time, to what I, or, I mean, Badlands or Red Dragon Cartel, and then stuff that I had done prior to that, and all the way into what I do now, that's just the way I hear music. I hear the bass as a, not as a foundation instrument, as but more of it as its own instrument, uh, you know. Uh, complementary with everything else just kind of making the music go in different directions you know because when you think about the, the way a lot of the guys played bass in the 80s bands okay uh like let's mm -hmm. say for something like high wire i mean you're doing the riff right along with jake you know a lot of bass players would have just wrote an open note you know what i mean so you were a lot different well that was the beauty of of being able to play with jake is our influences are very similar. What he we like the same kind of music, the same bands, the same players, and uh, so the way that he heard the bass player for Badlands as being as being someone that contributed a lot more than just pedaling on the A, and uh, he was very encouraging about that. So in the eighties, there you know, bass was performed a lot differently than the way that I performed it, but because I come from the 70s and I wasn't willing to compromise how I play, I, I it wouldn't have mattered who I was playing with. If someone wanted me to dumb it down, I wouldn't do it. As a matter of fact, in the 80s, there were bands that I auditioned for that said, hey, you know, that's really cool, but we would want you to do something much simpler, and I just walked. I just didn't interest me. I, I wanted to have my musical integrity intact. So let's go back to 1989, the Badlands debut. Does it blow your mind that still people are still talking about this thing? They love it to this day. Does it blow your mind? You know, I suppose what it really does is it. it I'm just. It's gratifying to know that people um, that it's kind of managed to transcend time, as opposed to uh, you know be a flavor of the month. I think the music stood the test of time. The players on there, whether it's Ray who was the best vocalist of his generation, in my opinion, or was Jake, you know, my all-time favorite guitar player. The riffs that he wrote were pretty timeless. And, of course, both drummers, Jeff and, and Eric, were great drummers, and then I got to do whatever I wanted. So it was really like the perfect storm for me. So the fact that it still got such a huge fan base, is it's uh, very rewarding and gratifying. So... I don't think you're on Twitter, but on Twitter, um, I tweet out a lot of videos and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. 
and, and you'll get reactions, you know, from people. And last night, because I was doing a lot of Badlands listening, research, getting ready for tonight, I sent out a video clip of Dreams in the Dark. And today, right before we started this interview, I looked at it. It had 426 <laughs> likes and 800 retweets. And I'm telling you, for the videos that I tweet out, that's like super high activity on a tweet. So people are loving it, man. They still love it. Yeah, you know, it's a shame that... Uh... You know, that record sits at about 485,000 copies sold, and if Atlantic ever decides to release it, I'm sure it would go gold within the first couple of weeks, and that would be nice, but our relationship with Atlantic was so contentious that I, I'm not sure if it'll ever be released, and if it does, I'm not even sure when that would be, but it's just nice to know that people remember it and appreciate it. I became a musician not to be a famous rock star, to be rich. I became a musician for the respect of my peers and to try to create something that would last and be noteworthy. And Badlands basically uh, served all those purposes for me. It was a great band to be in. You know, a lot of people commented, I'm glad you, you brought this up because I was going to bring it up. A lot of people say, why is this not on Spotify? So, like, what is the problem? Why? I mean, couldn't only Atlantic Records benefit at this point from, from putting this album out there? You know, we were so uh, against the grain with Atlantic that whatever they wanted to do, we didn't really give a damn what they wanted to do, and we just kind of did what we wanted to do. We we kind of, <clears throat> as the saying goes, you live by the sword, you die by it. And I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I and on one hand, I wish it would come out, but on the other hand, I can <clears throat> I can live with whatever the situation is. I just think that we pissed off Atlantic to a level that, you know, if it came out and sold some units, I don't think it makes enough money for them to uh, be worth it. And I think it's more of them being able to put a dig into us by never putting it out. I mean, obviously, we would make some money from it. But again, because n neither one of us, whether it's me or Jake, and obviously Ray's not around anymore, our reasons for doing it never had anything to do with the financial benefits of it. It had to do with this is what we like, and if people like it, great. But, you know, I wouldn't be disappointed if it came out. I just don't know if it ever will. What's crazy is because you think anybody that who was was pissed off at you guys, you think they'd be dead by now. You know what I, mean? I mean, you know, for some big record executive, I mean, 30 years later, jeez. Uh, Jason Flom, who was the uh, our A&R guy at Atlantic, uh, is now the head of Atlantic. Oh, okay. And he's a, and he's about my age, maybe even younger. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think that, uh, and we did not have a good relationship with him. He he hated us. We didn't think much more of him. Um, you know, the whole thing with that, we were on Atlantic, but we were on Titanium as well, which was what kind of like a custom label for Atlantic. And they all kind of like bets on how many records they thought we would sell between our our two managers paul o'neill and john goldwater and andy sesher who owned hit Crater, and jason flom and they all had these double and triple platinum numbers in their head that they thought we would sell and when we didn't do that i think they kind of blamed it on us for not towing the line the way that they would have wanted us to do uh there were a lot of times we wouldn't do interviews that were scheduled just because we didn't schedule them. They were kind of scheduled for us. So we really bucked the trend, and we really didn't go along with the uh, the machinery that they had into place. 
So like I said, you live by the sword, you die by it. I'm fine with that. I know Jake is as well. But I don't think Andy Sesher or uh, Jason Flom would like to see us get a gold record at some point. And if it, if it ever was re-released, I'm 100% positive we would get one. Well, that's Same pretty, with the pretty sad. That's sad. But what are you going to do, right? Yeah, you know what? I mean, if I spend all my time worrying about what guys like that think, then I'm wasting my time. It doesn't change anything. Like you said, there's a lot of fans out there that um, still remember the band and appreciate the band, and I know that myself because of a lot of people um, who are supporting Kings of Dust are people that I know from Badlands. Uh, and when I was in Red Dragon Cartel, the whole idea was, you know, Jake and I back together again from people who were huge supporters of Badlands music. I will say this. Um, if Ray were alive, I could guarantee you that me and him and Jake would have done something. I don't know what it would have been, but we would have done something at some point. I mean, the chemistry was musically was that strong. And for the most part, we actually got along pretty well. It would be with a different drummer than Eric or uh, Jeff. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, obviously Eric's pretty busy and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah, Eric's pretty busy doing, you know, making like tons of money. But <laughs> I do, I do know that uh, the three of us respected each other's, musical acumen enough that we would have done something else at, at some point. And I would have been completely up for that. Why, what happened with Eric Singer? Why did he end up uh, being out of Badlands? Yeah, it, you know, Eric was a great drummer. He wrote great drum parts. Um, I just think that his vision for what, for the band was different than what the three of us were. And, and you know, I said that, you know, we kind of bucked the trend you know, and that would have been me and uh, Jake, myself, and Ray really bucked the trend. Eric kind of was more willing to go along with the machine, and I think in the end, it just it it just ended up not being as good a fit. Now, having said that, I wish he would have stayed in the band um, because I think he was a great drummer and he added a lot to what it is we did. But again, having said that, I was really happy with you know Jeff being in the band. Jeff's a great, great drummer, and him and I go back to um, the early 70s. So, you know, it is what it is, but, um, I mean, obviously Eric made the right decision for Eric. He's part of a really big machine, and he kind of enjoys the security of that, and I think knowing where things are going. With Badlands, you never knew what was going. You never know. You would never know what we were going to do from t time to time, album to rec album, tour to tour. It was just kind of whatever whatever we came up with and a lot of it is whatever Jake came up with and if it wasn't right down the beaten path well so be it we did it anyway you know it's crazy because now when you think about it he's out for whatever reason you know just things aren't working out he ends up on Paul Stanley's solo tour right and actually then he was on that he was on that when we first got together um, he had already contracted to do Paul Stanley's solo tour so when he was in Badlands, he did the solo tour, and then when he left Badlands, first thing he did was Alice Cooper. Oh, that's yes, you're right. He was in Alice Cooper. It's hard to keep track of how many bands this dude was in. <laughs> Eric, Eric, you know that's just really kind of uh, a, you know a credit to him how many people he has played with. Because I mean, when first time I ever saw Eric play was playing with Lita Ford. Yep. 
So he's played with Gary Moore and Brian May and Paul Stanley and obviously Alice Cooper and Kiss and us, and I'm sure there's some other bands in there as well. I mean, Eric's a very well-versed uh, drummer. He's a very inventive drummer. and He's a great timekeeper. Uh, you don't have to pay attention to where he's at at all because he's going to be right where he's supposed to be every time. He seemed really in the zone on that first album, though, because I feel like he was... He had some Zeppelinish uh, drums on that one, and I think it fit well. You know what I mean? Absolutely, and and the material. Some of our, you know, Ray was a huge Zeppelophile, so you know some of that rubbed off. And then Jake wrote those riffs, and they definitely had some Zeppelin flavor in there with a lot of other bands as well. But there's definitely when you listen to Winter's Call or some of that other stuff, it definitely has a Zeppelin vibe to it um and i think eric was the right guy for that and he's you know he can play that bonhomie sort of feel and then even really weird stuff like devil stomp which has a really weird drum beat um uh there's just a lot of really intricate things that eric came up with that just made it that much better yeah i mean the whole album's amazing uh i actually listened to it again uh last night it's probably the first time in a long time and it really blew me away but one thing i can say is i think Dreams in the Dark is like the perfect first single for you guys. Because I feel like it, you know, had a little bit of 80s sensibility, right? Uh, it had the it had some 70s where you guys were, a lot of that album, you know, had a 70s vibe. And I even thought it was pretty cool, like right before the solo, it's got kind of like that Ozzy chug that Jake from the Jake era. So it kind of pulled everything yeah. together into one song, you know what I mean? I think if you were going to, I think actually... Uh, I wasn't around when they wrote that song. Um, when we were recording, Atlantic pulled us out of the studio, and Jake and Ray went to New York to write. They thought we needed some other songs, and I do believe that, if I'm not mistaken, Dreams in the Dark was written specifically. That's the one time where we kind of went along with what they wanted. So I do believe that Jake was trying to be, I don't, I don't want to say commercial, but a little bit more flexible with what Atlantic wanted. And obviously they got what they wanted. The song, I think it got to number 29, which we never approached that with anything else. Having said that, we never played the song live. Did you never? Really? (laughs) I think we probably played it seven or eight times live on the first tour. We had to make the video for it, which took 30 some odd hours. So by the time we were done with the video, we were going on tour right away. And I think we were just kind of sick of it. And, um, it's funny because in Red Dragon Cartel, I believe, I think we played it live more in Red Dragon Cartel than I ever played it in Badlands. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great tune. I mean, and it's got, I get a lot of uh, comp, comp comments and compliments on the baseline in that because it's kind of a off the wall baseline in there as well. So yeah, it's a great track. I, I've always liked it. Um, but I like everything that we wrote. I'd be hard pressed for me to tell you, if you said, which song don't you like? I'd be like, uh, I, I don't know. I like them all. Yeah, I mean, it's a great album. And as, as great as all you guys are as musicians, I'm telling you, it's it's Ray Gillen's vocals that sell it for me. You know what I mean? I feel like that's that's the icing on the cake right there. Yeah, I think it was a perfect band for Ray to be in. He'd been in some other bands, and I and I, he didn't really, what didn't really work out. He'd been in Sabbath. He'd been in Blue Murder. He, he'd been with... Uh, um, what's it? I can't remember his name now. The guitar player and Billy Idol, Steve Stevens. Uh, Steve Stevens, and I think that uh, Badlands, because we were so seventies oriented, I think it gave Ray the perfect vehicle to do what it is that he did best. And 
I think it really shows. I think racing's great on all three of the records. As much as uh, the first record is, you know, the mo- most popular of the three, I actually like Voodoo Highway better than the first one because I think we really were hitting our stride. We we were progressing as a band and as songwriters. Jake was getting to explore more of uh, the influences that he had and the interests that he had. And then even when we did Dusk, which came out, you know, after Ray had passed away, it again kind of showed how we were progressing as a band and songwriters. Um, it's kind of a shame that uh, we never got to see it to fruition. I kind of think, and you probably think the same way, that anything that he's on is going to sound good for the most part. Because I'll give you an example. I never cared much for the 80s, late 80s uh, version of Sabbath or the mid 80s. And But when they released those demos with him singing on yeah. it, I was like, oh, I like these songs. <laughs> it was weird. You know what I mean? But, but like with what I think Tony Martin might have been the singer. Not that they're bad, but with, when, with Ray on it, it's just a whole other thing, you know? Well, Tony Martin kind of came in and, and mimicked Ray, what Ray had. I had Ray had given me a copy of those demos, and I had them for a long time, and I eventually gave them back to him because he lost his. But um, uh, if you listen to what Ray laid down on there, Tony Martin pretty much covers him faithfully pretty close. Yeah, yeah. So as a matter of fact, if you listen to any of the other Sabbath records with Tony Martin, they don't have that same kind of vibe. Uh, Ray had a bluesier bent to him than probably Tony Martin. Nothing against Tony. I think he's a great singer. But it was just, you could tell that he was doing Ray's stick more than he was doing his own. And then he went off, you know, as they progressed and played on a bunch of Sabbath records. And he got to show his true worth as well. But, yeah, I I think that uh, that record, uh, Eternal Idol, that's one of my favorite Sabbath records. So let's go to Voodoo Highway, uh, obviously another killer album. And I think you kind of touched on this. And what I think too is that, you know, I, I feel like if there were 80s vibes lingering in uh, the first album, they're kind of gone here. We're, we're, we're kind of progressing. We're getting a little more experimental. Uh, would you agree? Yeah. And we were never concerned whether we were writing 80s style or anything else. I think the writing on Voodoo Highway is probably even more 70s than the first record. Yeah, big time, big time. Um, and I think as you start off and they're really solid songs, but then you get midway in the album and I feel like you're starting to really open up and get experimental as well with uh, like Three Day Funk and uh, Soul Stealer. I mean, he's got a real yeah. crazy uh, effect on his vocal. It just, it's killer. Well, Three Day Funk... And Love Don't Mean a Thing are my two favorite songs on there. But Silver Horse is a great song. Yep. Soul Stealer, a song I co-wrote on there, which is Shine On, I really like. Um, and even the stuff, uh, you know, uh, the acoustic stuff that, that uh, Jake and Ray did, uh, the Voodoo Highway, or and uh, I can't remember the names of the songs now. So it, it, it really just kind of mirrored where we were at perfectly. Yes, yes. Um, and even Fire and Rain, I mean, you can't deny that. I mean, what a killer vocal performance on that one. Fire and Rain was an unusual track because we would, when Badlands would go on the road, we Jake would make a cassette tape and it would be all cover songs on it that we would play in our sound checks. We would never play our own material in sound checks. We might play like a few minutes of Winner's Call just to get the background vocals right. But we would just play obscure covers, whether it was Captain Beyond or... Uh, really obscure Fleetwood Mac or free, you know, stuff that wasn't on the beaten 
you know, so much on the, on the, everyone's radar, we would just kind of go off in different directions. And, uh, one day at soundcheck, Ray said, let's play fire and water, which he meant to say, he meant, he said, let's play fire and rain. What he meant to say was let's play fire and water, which is a free song that we played in soundcheck. So when he said fire and rain, Jake just started it. And me and Jeff, uh, me and Eric just kind of fell in. I'm sorry. Yeah. Me and Eric just kind of fell in and we kind of did it ex- almost close to the way it is on the record right from the get go. It was just a real natural thing. So when the time came to record, uh, um, Voodoo Highway, Atlantic wanted us to use a songwriter to write a single. And Jake decided that we should do, uh, Fire and Rain as a single. And we did. And, you know, had we not been on, uh, Atlantic's crap list, I'm sure it would have been released as a single and it would have been fairly successful. A uh, little sidebar to that is James Taylor's manager found out we were going to re- record it or that we had recorded it, and he sent us a message asking us not to release the song because it was too personal to James, and it was about these very traumatic moments in his life, and he just didn't want a hard rock version of the song out there. So true to Badlands form, we said, yeah, <laughs> screw you, and we released it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I think it's and it's I mean, hey, it's a great song by James Taylor. It's a great song by you guys. It's it's not going to change anything. Yeah, I, it's totally it's totally cool. I'm I like James Taylor's version. We would have never been able to play it if all of us weren't familiar with it. No, but it definitely it definitely goes its own direction. Jeff's drumming on it is top notch. Again, I get to do anything I want, and you know, Jake and Ray are just stellar on it. It's just a brilliant track. You know, and, and when you talk about some of the acoustic stuff toward the end, I, I, and that's in a dream. And I, I don't know if you were, if yeah. you knew this or remember this, but I remember uh, we used to watch American Idol a long time ago. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, Bo Bo, and, and I just be thinking, like, what the hell, man? This guy's cool. He knows who Badlands are. He's doing Badlands. I'm sure the, the people, the producers were like, what the hell? <laughs> Pretty much. I got a phone call when it was on saying, quick, turn on American Idol, which I don't watch. And I turned it on, and I caught the tail end of him singing it. And actually, through that, through all of that, Bo and I ended up becoming friends on Facebook. And at one point, he wanted me to play on. He wanted Jeff and I to play on some record he was going to do. And I don't know. I think it just maybe fell through. But yeah, it was really kind of cool because it forced people to go back and see what was that that he was singing, and a whole other group of people discovered us. So it was real cool. Yeah, and uh, okay, so at, after this album, I mean, times are changing in the music industry. Um, do you think you guys kind of got unfairly mixed into the, the hairband scene with, with all the changes? Or You know, we never paid any attention to it. We just kind of did our own thing, and we weren't really concerned with what anything else was going on. I mean, the one thing that did happen is after Voodoo Highway was out, the whole grunge thing was starting to happen. And I, you know, I remember we were doing an in-store, and they, and they had Nirvana nirvana uh things hanging from the ceiling uh in utro in outro, however you say it uh kind of like poster things and i remember jake and i sitting there going we might be in trouble here and we were i mean again that didn't change what we did i think the third record dusk would have pro- probably been uh, he- the heaviest record we would have done but it had nothing to do with that's just where our head was at at the time. That's where Jake was at with his writing. Um, I contributed some to that as well. Um, but we were also kind of uh, estranged from each other uh, as far as Ray and the rest of us. So there were issues um, that, you know, 
the record never came out until the late 90s. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, I know it's 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 partly finished and partly a demo, and I'm sure, you know, if Ray would have lived, you guys would have went on to do a lot more albums, or, or at least get that album, you know, completely fine-tuned. Yeah, I mean, it was a demo that we went in and uh, uh, we mixed it. I mixed, I would mix all day, and then Jake would come in and fix whatever he didn't like of mine, and then mix all night, and we just kind of put it out there because there was some interest, the, you know, the Notorious Badlands, third album demo so a lot of that ray doesn't even have lyrics for it he's just kind of syllabalizing so had we actually finished it and there were a couple other tracks that he didn't have any vocals for it's just kind of him humming along so we didn't even put them on there but had had ray you know stayed alive and had we stayed together i think that would have been a really good album and again you know one of the things about badlands that i really like is each album is a progression first album sounds a certain way second album sounds different but you could tell it's the same band the third album would have sounded different again but still the same band i mean jake never repeats himself you can even tell that with red dragon cartel you know he puts out red dragon cartel doesn't sound anything like badlands it has some of the badlands vibe to it and then he puts out patina which doesn't sound anything like uh the first red dragon cartel record but again it has some vibe of the way that he writes so i mean he we were never going to do the same record twice. So you guys um, were managed and produced uh, by Paul O'Neill, and everybody knows him from uh, Sabotage, and uh, which ultimately became TSO. Um, but things didn't turn out very well with him. What happened there? Uh, we never liked him anyway. Um, I mean, Ray Ray had a prior relationship with him because Paul O'Neill had been kind of like a gopher at Lieber and Krebs, and Ray was managed to... With, with Lieber and Krebs. So when Badlands got together, uh, I think Paul O'Neill probably tried to convince Lieber and, Lieber and Krebs that he could bring Badlands into their stable as far as managing us. So we had actually agreed to to let another guy manage us named Larry Mazur. And uh, Ray went back to New York before we signed with Larry Mazur. Larry Mazur managed Kiss and Cinderella. And uh, we had actually had a handshake deal with him. Well, then Ray came back from New York and said, I don't want to sign with Larry Mazur. I want to go with Paul O'Neill. Uh, so it kind of was a sticky situation. Um, we met with Paul O'Neill. He promised us all kinds of stuff. And some of it he delivered on, some of it he didn't. Uh, all of a sudden, he's producing our first record, which in, you know, I'll just say right up front, he doesn't have a lot to do with that. I mean, Jake had way more to do with the production of that record than Paul O'Neill did. It's just that it was agreed that he would have his name on it. And there are some stuff, you know, the way that that record was produced, there are multiple takes of every song on that record. When we did Voodoo, there might have been four takes max of each song. So our approach was a lot different. It's just what Paul wanted isn't what we wanted. Uh, and he didn't like Eric and I. He was never a fan of Eric and I being in a band. He tried to actually get us replaced. At one point, he tried to get Jake replaced was complete lunacy wow so he was not a friend of mine uh i mean god rest his soul i'm sorry i'm sorry he died but you know one of the happiest days of my musical career was they let me fire him and i was <laughs> thrilled oh, now a few well, years back um you had uh cancer correct i did yeah uh, everything's good now though right 
Yeah, I had stage four tongue cancer. I was in uh, Red Dragon Cartel. We were getting to go back on the, getting ready to go back on the road for five, six months. And I had been sick on the whole first tour I was on with them. And so I quit because uh, I knew I was sick, but I, no one was diagnosing me correctly, obviously, because they were telling me I didn't have anything wrong with me. It was just allergies. And then right before Red Dragon Cartel was going to go back on the road, um, I quit and I went and found a ear, nose and throat doctor who actually diagnosed me correctly. I had stage four tongue cancer. Wow. Kind of like what Bruce Dickinson had or yeah. Tom Hamilton or, uh, I think Mustaine has it and even, uh, uh, Ricky rocket, same, same kind of cancer. Would you learn from that whole, um, experience? I learned that being a hard ass at my age was a wasted skill and that um, I kind of went through life um, not really worrying about whether I pissed someone off or not and sometimes I would go out of my way to be disagreeable and I learned when I had cancer and they told me I was going to die from it um, <clears throat> that maybe I should rethink the way that I had been doing my life and so I did. I just I just learned that maybe it's better to be a little bit uh, nicer, you know, to, to to not rock the boat as much. Having said that, I wouldn't change the way we did anything in Badlands. But um, in my personal relationships, I really had a chip on my shoulder, and I didn't have any problem. If you stepped on my shoe, I didn't have any problem calling you on it. And I learned that someone stepping on your shoe isn't that big a deal. Definitely, so, I, I understand. If that, make, if that makes any sense. Uh, it does, it does. Uh, and you know, I mean, we all know, like you said, you mentioned a ton of people. You wouldn't have believed the people I've talked to on the podcast who have lost somebody to cancer, a bandmate to cancer. So, I mean, it's a terrible disease. So many of us have been affected by it. <laughs> but I'm glad to hear that, you know, everything's good with you now. That's awesome. Well, you know, the thing is, you know, uh, Kings of Dust is a long-term project. We started it seven years ago it kind of started out of another band and then uh, that band ended up kind of breaking up the, the guitar player and drummer ended up leaving for their own reasons and michael beck uh, our singer who also spent a little time with red dragon cartel um called me up and said i think the songs that we had were really great why don't we find another drummer and guitar player and move forward so we found the guitar player that we have ryan mckay who's a brilliant guitarist, great writer, great singer, just top-notch guy. And we went through five or six drummers. And then I, uh, we put it on hold because I was going to go out with Red Dragon Cartel for the foreseeable future at that point. Uh, had I not gotten sick, I probably would still be there with them. That doesn't mean I wouldn't have finished this. Well, then when I got sick, I didn't want to even do it. So there's about a three-year period where Kings of Dust was just kind of sitting there waiting for me to get enough energy to finish it. So out of the blue, I ran into a drummer friend of mine, Jimmy Taft, who I had played with. He's a brilliant drummer. And I said, you need to be in uh, Kings of Dust with me. Matter of fact, I even announced he was in the band before I even asked him to be in it. <laughs> and uh, so we got together and uh, finished writing the record and we recorded it. And so if there's one upside to the cancer thing is that it, it kind of put me in a spot where uh, I 
got to finish the Kings of Dust record. I really like it. If you like that 70s vibe, uh, the, um, even a prior work that I've done, I think people would like it. And uh, it's 13 songs. Uh, so far, the people that have received the record have the reviews, and there have been some other reviews in other spots that have been off the hook. So right now I'm real happy with it. I mean, I wouldn't wish cancer on anyone and uh, I would certainly wouldn't wish it on me again, but it did have a silver lining. It kind of changed my point of view and also allowed me to finish the record. I mean, the downside is I have some side effects from all that and, and I'm, and I don't play with Jake at the moment and, you know, maybe someday we will play together again. But on the upside, I think if uh, people have a chance to pick up Kings of Dust, I think they'll like it. So if you see it out there, or go find it and give us a shot. Nice. Now, a lot of people might not know this, but you did a solo album. I want to say it was 1994, and you actually sing on it. And, man, you got a pretty damn good voice. I was surprised. Thank you. Yeah, I can't sing like that anymore. That was the other byproduct of uh, <clears throat> of having cancers that screwed up my vocals. So at the time, I mean, I don't really care for my voice, but I kind of had a tenor voice i used to always i always tell people i went from singing like greg allman to billy gibbons <laughs> so i lost i lost a bunch of range off my voice but uh yeah it's a different kind of record than kings of dust it's very bluesy kind of like really early zz top meets allman brothers meets johnny winter with some british blues thrown in there too i like the record it's a great record eric singer played on it and uh you know, uh, me and my school school time chum, Jim McMillan, wrote all the material on there, and uh, it's a good record. Now, uh, your brother was the bass player in Keel. Um, wh- whatever happened to him, yeah. I, I never hear much about him anymore. He's an electrician. Uh, he lives t- here in the Phoenix area. I see him every couple, every couple weeks. He plays bass a little bit with just some friends. Nothing professional, just kind of pick up gets together with a drummer and guitar player, singer friend of theirs, and they just learn cover songs. Nothing. I don't think they have any intentions of playing out that I even know. I just think that Kenny, you know, has been a bass player since he was in high school, end of high school. And I think I gave him his first bass as a graduation present. It's kind of funny that you guys are both bass players. Cause you think of so many of these brother duos, like one's the drummer, one's the guitar, guitar, bass. It's funny that you both play bass. Well, here's the even oddest part. My other brother, Todd, played in Tough. Oh, yeah, that's right, right. And he's bass, right? And he's a bass player as well. As a matter <laughs> of fact, he still plays in Tough when they go out and play. I don't know how many shows they do a year, a dozen or a half dozen. <laughs> he still goes and plays with them. Oh, my God. So, yeah, all three of us are bass players. Um, it's, you know, Kenny and I have tried to do a couple things where he plays bass and I play drums or he plays bass and I play guitar, but uh, it's just never really worked out. Kenny's work schedule is pretty intense. He usually has to leave for work at 2 or 3 in the morning, and he's a supervisor for a commercial electrician company. So chances of getting something solid together with Kenny, unless he retires at some point, probably isn't going to be happening anytime soon. And Todd lives in Cleveland, so last time I saw... Todd, I was in Red Dragon Cartel and playing at the Agora in Cleveland. Do you feel like in some situations, let's just say with the Keel situation and your brother, I mean, at this point, 
I mean, you get to a certain age. I mean, do you think you, you're just better off having like a stable job with health insurance? I mean, you know what I mean? It, I, I mean, I guess as I get older, th this is how I'm thinking. As glamorous as it is, as it sounds to be out there in a band, I mean, sometimes there's just things you just need. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, for me, um, when Badlands was coming to an end, you know, I had made some money from my solo record and we were going to come back to Phoenix to buy a house. And the thing for me that was kind of the uh, final nail for me was I didn't want to be gone. My son had just been born and I'd missed maybe the first nine months of his life while I was on the road. So I had, you know, at one point Jake and I were going to, he, he wanted to put another band together again after Badlands with me and him, another drummer and another singer. And I was totally down for that, but I would wanted it. I would have wanted it to be something that would have fit into my schedule better so that I could be around to raise my son. And, you know, he's 28 now. And so I didn't really miss being on the road. I wanted to raise my daughter who's now 21. So I didn't really miss, doing that and jake also had a daughter at the time and i think he wanted to spend a little more time at home as well so had we done something i think that uh we would have tried to have our cake and eat it too i would have probably had some kind of other job while i was still playing in a band it just so happened with me moving to arizona that made it made it too tough for us to get together um when he called me to be in red dragon cartel one of the reasons I wanted to do it, I mean, I wanted to play with him again, first of all. Um, and second of all, my children were now grown and they'd never seen me in that setting. They'd seen me playing like cover bands or whatever. They'd never seen me playing at the whiskey or at some of these other places. So I wanted them to experience what had happened in my life before they were born. And because of social media, I was even more... I don't know whether the word is popular, but I was more well-known um, af after I was in Kings of... I mean, after I, sorry, after I was in Red Dragon Cartel, I was more well-known because social media was so intense. So they got to experience all that. So it was actually really cool. So last question. Uh, you, know mm -hmm. how, you know how Queen found Adam Lambert, okay? Let's just say you get the original guys from Badlands and you find some prodigy who can pull off Ray's music. You in for a reunion? Um, you know, I would tell you, yeah, I am. Um, uh, however, Jake has always said that there would never be a Badlands without Ray. So I would kind of go with whatever he came up with. If Jake called me and said, Hey, we're going to go do such and such a shows. We're going to use this singer and we're going to call it Badlands. I'd say, okay. Or if it was going to be, Hey, we're going to do, we're going to go out and do the music of Badlands as, you know, Jakey Lee does the music of Badlands. I'd probably be down with that. I don't know where he's at on that. I've never actually discussed it with him. I, he just, you know, we're really, really good friends and always have been. So he knows that I'm there, you know, short of illness whenever he needs me. And, and, and that's cool. But I mean, on the other hand, Kings of Dust will go do some shows here at some point. Um, we're looking at doing a dozen or so dates in, uh, Texas and Oklahoma right off the bat. We'll probably go up to Nebraska, too. We've had some other offers to do dates. We're just trying to see whether we can string stuff together. <laughs> I don't think we'll go get in a tour bus and go for two or three months, but I could see where we would. I definitely know we are going to go do some shows at some point. Uh, there's a talk about us possibly going to Japan to do some shows and even to Europe for a bit. 
for some festivals and that. So um, I would be all, I'm all for playing with Jake again, but I'm having the time of my life playing with these guys. And to be perfectly honest right now, Kings of Dust is my priority. I want to see what it can turn into. And uh, I don't have any delusions of grandeur, but I'm very proud of it. And I think that uh, once we get out and play live, I think people will like it. And I think once they hear the disc, they will also like it. Well, hey, great conversation, Greg. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. That was a great interview with Greg. But now it's time to talk about the Kings of Dust album. Now, I wish I could have had this CD before the interview because we would have talked a lot more about it because I freaking love it. It's a great, hard, classic rock album. I've listened to this for a month in my car, back and forth to work and whatnot, and it really just gave me the old vibe of the 80s and 90s, getting to know an album, not just some quick stream and then you move on. That being said, this album doesn't just grow on you, it takes you over. I really don't want to mention one song being better than another because every song is great on this. It's a cohesive set of tunes. But I will mention a few tracks here. It's split with melody-driven songs like My Peace of Mind and Mama, and it has a lot of riff-driven tracks like What's the Other and the track Wolves. The musicianship here is top-notch, and I would especially say that this is Greg's most elaborate and nasty bass lines ever. The production sounds like a live show, not some condensed, computerized crack. They have a very unique sound, but I know that people want to hear a comparison, so here you go. If you take Zeppelin, Sabbath, Deep Purple, Van Halen, Kiss, Queensryche, Badlands, and Alice in Chains, and you blend them all up, you might get something that's close. So go figure it out for yourself. Go buy it. The links are all in the description. So we've got to give it a we got to give it a rating here. So we figure everything's always fire on the '80s glam metal cast. So we'll use a torch rating. Five torches will be a perfect album, and I give this one five torches. So go check it out. You're gonna love it. Rock on! How the heck do you combine Alice in Chains, Van Halen, Kiss, and whoever? You yeah, say? that's what I, that's that's what I that I hear. 